Part Three, Chapter Seven of Rebel and Rose Leaves and Things of That Kind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. Rebel and Rose Leaves by Frank W. Borum. All's Well That Ends Well. It was a cruel winter's night. An icy wind was howling across the plain. A glorious fire was blazing in the dining-room grate, and happily I had no engagements. To add to our felicity, the San Francisco mail had arrived that morning, bringing our monthly budget of news from home. The letters had, of course, been devoured upon delivery, but the papers and magazines had been laid aside for evening consumption. We had just opened the packages and arranged the journals in order of publication, when there came a ring at the front doorbell. We glanced at each other meaningly, and at the papers regretfully. All kinds of visions presented themselves. Visions of a garrulous visitor who, with business over, would not go. Visions of a long drive across the plain in the biting wind. Visions of everything but an evening with each other, a roaring fire, and the English mail. As though to rebuke our inhospitable and ungracious thoughts, however, it was only Elsie Hammond, Elsie often dropped in of an evening. She usually brought her fancy work, and in her presence we were perfectly at our ease. Every manse has one or two such visitors. We read, worked, or chatted when Elsie came, just as we should have done if she had not dropped in. "'Why, Elsie!' I exclaimed, as soon as, divested of her hat and cloak, she entered the dining-room and took her usual chair. "'Whatever brings you out on a wild night like this?' "'Well,' she replied, "'I wanted to see you about the young people's missionary union. "'You remember that they made me secretary last month, "'and we are arranging for the annual meeting. "'We have invited Mr. Hereford Johnson "'of the North Africa Evangelization Society "'to give an address, "'and I received his reply this morning. "'He will be coming out from town by the 5.20 train, "'and I wondered if you could let him come to the manse to tea, "'and, if needs be, stay the night.' I put Elsie at her ease by telling her that she might leave the matter of Mr. Johnson's reception and entertainment entirely in my hands. And then, resuming the pile of papers, we had a royal evening with the English news. The day of the missionary meeting arrived, and as the clock struck five, I set out for the station. Quite a number of people were moving in the same direction, among them the Reverend J. M. McCarrow, my Presbyterian neighbor. We walked towards the station together. On the platform, however, he recognized a lady friend from a distance. He moved away to speak to her, and in the bustle of the train's arrival, we saw each other no more. I had never met Mr. Johnson, nor had any description of his personal appearance been given me. For some reason, I had pictured to myself a tall, cadaverous man in a severe garb, bearing upon him the signs of the ravages wrought by a variety of tropical diseases and, contrary to one's usual experience, a gentleman roughly according with this prognostication stepped from the train and began to look aimlessly about him. "'Mr. Johnson?' I inquired, approaching him. "'Ah!' he replied. "'And you are from the manse.' I admitted the impeachment, and we set off together for home. On the way we chatted about the weather, the place, the crops, the people, the church, the services, and things in general.' 
He was a vivacious conversationalist and exhibited a remarkably alert and hungry mind. He wanted to know all about everything, and when we discussed my own work, its difficulties, and its encouragements, he showed a genuine interest and a delightful sympathy. We'd invited several of the leading missionary spirits of the congregation to meet him at tea. In order that the conversation at table might be generally enjoyable, I had stored my mind with a fine assortment of questions concerning conditions in northern Africa, which, like a quiverful of arrows, I intended firing at our guest as opportunity offered. But opportunity did not offer. Mr. Johnson was so interested in the work of the various organizations represented round the table that he made it impossible for us to inquire about his own. Moreover, our visitor chanced to discover that one of our guests had in his home a little boy who was afflicted with blindness. On eliciting this information, Mr. Johnson lapsed into sudden silence and looked, I thought, as though he had been hurt. But after tea, he drew the father of the blind boy aside and explained to him that he himself had but one child, a little girl of ten, and she was similarly afflicted. As he spoke of her, his vivacity vanished, and a great depth of tenderness revealed itself. I wondered, but did not care to ask, if the blindness of his child was part of the price that he had been compelled to pay for residence in tropical Africa. After telling us of his little daughter, and of the comfort that she was to him, Mr. Johnson looked at his watch. "'We have nearly an hour,' he said, "'before meeting time. "'May I peep into your sanctum? "'I love to glance over a man's books. "'Rarely have I spent an hour in the study so delightfully. "'All his enthusiasm awoke again at sight of the shelves. "'He took down volume after volume, "'handling each with affectionate reverence, "'and making each the text of a running comment "'of a most fascinating character. "'Amusing anecdotes about the author,' an outline of the singular circumstances under which certain of the books were written, illuminating criticisms by eminent authorities, sparkling quotations of out-of-the-way passages, there seemed to be no end to his fund of lively and original observations. "'But I say,' he suddenly ejaculated, "'that conversation at table was most interesting and valuable. I had no idea that so much excellent work was being done. I have often wondered.' But at that moment... The mistress of the manse intervened. "'Excuse me,' she said, as she opened the study door. "'But Mr. McCarrow and another gentleman wish to see you at once in the drawing-room.' To the drawing-room I accordingly repaired, and there I found my companion of the afternoon, accompanied by a short, ruddy, thick-set man, who was laughing very heartily. "'This is an extraordinary situation,' my friend began." "'You will have discovered by this time "'that we jumped to conclusions too hurriedly this afternoon. "'This is Mr. Hereford Johnson "'of the North Africa Evangelization Society, "'who is, I believe, to lecture for you tonight, "'and I think you must have walked off "'with Mr. Douglas E. Johnson, M.A., "'who is to address our teachers this evening "'on the kindergarten method "'as applied to Sunday school work. "'Mrs. McCarrow and I had invited "'the superintendent of our Sunday school,' and the teachers of the primary classes to meet Mr. Johnson at tea at the manse, and we got into a beautiful tangle. It was like playing a game of cross-questions and crooked answers. The young people were asking Mr. Johnson's advice on technical matters connected with their classes, and Mr. Johnson was modestly disclaiming all knowledge of the subject, and was telling us of his experiences in Central Africa. We were all beginning to feel that the world had suddenly turned topsy-turvy, 
when Mr. Johnson suddenly asked how long ago the Young People's Missionary Union was established, and seemed surprised that a Miss Elsie Hammond was not present. Then the truth broke upon us, and we have all been laughing ever since. I cordially welcomed Mr. Johnson, and then we all three went through to the dining-room, in which by this time the whole of our party was assembled. Mr. Johnson was holding the company spellbound. I briefly introduced our two visitors and explained the position. The announcement was received with bursts of merriment, although our tea-table guest was covered with confusion and full of apologies. However, he quickly entered into the humor of the situation, and after promising to return to lunch with the African Mr. Johnson next day, he went off with Mr. McCarrow laughing heartily. Both meetings were a great success. The comedy of errors may have had something to do with it. In comparing notes next morning, both speakers declared that they felt very much at home with their audiences. The joke had quickly spread, and created an atmosphere of sympathy and familiarity. Henry Drummond used to say that he never could get on with people until he had laughed with them. Both meetings opened that evening with a bond already established between speaker and audience, and that stands for a good deal. We had a very happy time, too, at lunch next morning. Our visitors were both pleased that the mistake had been made. "'It's very nice,' said Mr. Hereford Johnson, "'to have got into touch with two ministers and two congregations instead of one. "'I am thankful to have been able to say a word for Africa "'to the young people with whom I had tea at Mr. McCarrow's. "'And for my part,' added Mr. Douglas Johnson, "'I am thoroughly ashamed of myself.' The conversation at the tea-table last evening was a perfect revelation to me. I have often heard about foreign missions, and I suppose I ought to have interested myself in them. But one has his own line of things, and is apt to get into grooves. I had no idea until yesterday that the movement was so orderly and systematic, nor that the operations were so extensive. It was like being taken into the confidence of a military commander and shown his strategy." I go back feeling that my mind has been fitted with a new set of windows, and I am able to look out upon the world in a way that was impossible before. I am delighted, too, to have met my namesake, Mr. Hereford Johnson. He has given me, taking a pamphlet from his pocket, a copy of the last annual report of the North Africa Evangelization Society, and I shall always think more kindly of Africa because of this singular experience at Mosgiel. It was years before I heard of either of our visitors again. Mr. Hereford Johnson, it is true, posted me each year a copy of the report of his work. In 1899, however, he enclosed the pamphlet in a note, saying that he had found some of the hints that he had picked up in his conversation with Mr. McCarrow's kindergarten teachers very useful to his native school. There is something in the idea, he wrote, that appeals to the African mind and I am sending to London for some literature on the subject, with a view to applying the system more extensively. The mistakes that we all made that evening at the Mosgiel Railway Station have proved, to me, very profitable ones. I never heard directly from Mr. Douglas Johnson, but about five years afterwards I noticed in an Auckland paper the announcement of the death of his little blind girl, and a year or two later I saw in the annual report of Mr. Hereford Johnson's mission the acknowledgment of a handsome donation from D.E.J., in loving memory of one who, though spending all her days in darkness, now sees, and desires that Africa shall have the light of life. Of all the things that are made in a world like this, 
mistakes are by no means the worst. End of Part 3, Chapter 7 End of Rubble and Rose Leaves and Things of That Kind by Frank W. Borum